This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Nam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we're facing a catastrophic humanitarian crisis right now in Turkey and Syria. And we're going to be going to an interview that you did with uh, Dr. Anis Germani in a minute here. But, uh, you know, estimates now are over 30,000 dead, hundreds of thousands of individuals who are displaced and homeless right now. So it's a big story. We're going to come back to that in a minute. You did an excellent interview with Dr. Anissa Germani, and we're going to hear more about the live up-to-date situation on the ground in Syria, actually. The Syrian situation has been neglected by the mainstream media here in the United States. It's been neglected by the world community, but not just the media has been neglecting what's happening in Syria. International humanitarian aid is not getting into Syria the way it is getting into Turkey. So we're going to be talking about that. There's a couple of other big stories. Uh, Obviously, we have the fake democracy uh, demonstrations going on in Tel Aviv right now. We're going to be talking a little bit about the situation there on the ground. We're, we're going to talk a little bit about what a top Israeli rabbi said also, where he, he said basically that the death of Turks and Syrians, basically Muslims and Christians, was ordained by God. So, you know, we're going to try to wrap our minds around that kind of racism and Islamophobia in a second. And then finally, our fa- one of our favorite topics And this is not breaking news, but we need to cover it anyways. The Washington Post did an investigative report and surprise, surprise, found that uh, Jared Kushner and Donald Trump benefited from their relationship that they, while they were in office, being paid by U.S. tax dollars, benefited personally from their relationships with the crown prince and, you know, other Gulf leaders. So we have a lot to cover today. But uh, I think first we have to see this interview that you did with Anissa Germani. That's right, just uh, uh, just uh, commenting on uh, Jared Kushner and Donald Trump. Not only they, they did uh, uh, profit, but uh, MBS basically bailed them out because after Trump left office, both the Trump Corporation and Kushner's uh, uh, financial uh, positions were in, in basically uh, in the red, and and he bailed them out. And we've been talking about this for several months, actually right. for the past more than a year. Uh, but uh, you're right. Let's go to Dr. Anis Germani. He spoke to me from Beirut. Rescuers continue to pull out more survivals from the rubble in Turkey and Syria as the death toll from the 7.8 and 7.5 magnitude earthquakes that hit southeastern Turkey and northern Syria last week had risen to over 36,000, and it is expected to continue to go up as rescuers find more bodies in the destruction. According to the International Rescue Committee's President David Miliband, A massive aid effort underway in Turkey, but delays in aid to Syria might cause a secondary crisis for Syrians already suffering from years of war. Joining us from Beirut to discuss this and more is Anis Germani, a political activist and a medical doctor. Welcome again to Arab Talk, Anis. Thank you so much. Good to be here again. So the doctors in northwest Syria say that Uh, they are completely overwhelmed by the devastating earthquakes that struck the region earlier this week. 
and don't have the resources or necessary equipment to address the severity of the injuries endured uh, by survivors. Tell us about the medical conditions in Syria, particularly in, in, in the region most affected uh, by the earthquakes. Well, Jamal, it's um, no, it's no surprise that the healthcare sector, the Syrian healthcare sector, uh, that once provided the socialized medicine uh, has completely collapsed. Uh, ten, uh, more than 10 years of war, uh, crippling sanctions, and mass migration of any qualified personnel have left it completely depleted of any uh, material and human resources to, for it to be able to function. Adding to it now, this this crisis that, that was brought on by the by the earthquake has completely overwhelmed it, even though it was already, uh, you know, on its knees, if you want to say. It's actually, uh, it's a bit reminiscent of the Lebanese healthcare system after the explosion of August 4th at the port. Or when, when, when you get this sudden rush of thousands upon thousands of patients, any a highly functional healthcare sector would find itself overwhelmed. So, what's the what, what would be the case of a of a healthcare sector that is completely destroyed and ravaged? So, the first uh, United Nations convoy arrived in northwest Syria from Turkey three days after the earthquake. Martin Griffith, the UN aid chief, uh, has said rescue efforts are coming to a close and that the word has so far failed people in northwest Syria, saying survivors there rightly feel abandoned. Uh, as a medical doctor, tell us how these delays in aid have uh, uh, exacerbated the situation. Well, the thing is that it's not a strictly medical problem. So when there's an, an earthquake and, and buildings uh, collapse, usually it's a race against time. So there are people who are, first of all, there's, there's a huge number of people who are injured. They have you know, uh, immediate needs that have to be met, in like cuts, bleeds, bruises, hemorrhages, the, the likes. These people who have, have not been you know, injured under, under buildings, these people rush to hospitals and they seek urgent care. However, there's people who are, who are also stuck under their buildings, uh, in their apartments. Uh, the, these people need to be, need to be found immediately uh, for, for many reasons. First of all, they, they, lack, they lack food, water. Uh, some of them might be, might be injured. So um, the, the, in order to, to excavate uh, you know, the, the, the collapsed buildings, many, uh, a lot of people are required and, and a lot of tools as well. Usually, on average, uh, rescue missions in, uh, in the context of earthquakes last around a week. And today marks the seventh day after the uh, you know the, the onset of the uh, of the of the double earthquake that hit uh, Turkey and Syria. So we can definitely expect that as of as of now, the mortality rate is going to be much higher, and the, unfortunately, the, the survival rate is going to is going to drop uh, tremendously. I mean, we are still finding some some people are still alive, which which adds you know the I mean it adds the disappointment that that these people need to be uh, you know uh, helped. As soon as possible, and at the same time, uh, you know, we are we're very pessimistic about uh, about you know the, the, the future prospects of, of finding other people. So, in that sense, um, delaying uh, aid to these people is basically condemning them to certain death. Uh, doctors in Aleppo uh, have been saying that while most uh, medical staff were having to condemn, which is really what you're talking about with uh, injuries, broken arms, legs, uh, legs uh, and infected wounds, uh, they say that the coming days would likely seem to have to contend with uh, 
waterborne diseases such as uh, cholera and an uptick in COVID-19 cases and instances of uh, hypothermia or frostbite. Uh, I mean, is, is there a concern about the spread, spread of now diseases there? Well, there was already a concern long before the, uh, uh, the, the earthquake. There was already a huge outbreak of cholera in Syria that spread also to Lebanon. And we're talking about, about hundreds of thousands of cases. That, that, is, that is no joke. And these infectious diseases tend to run rampant in context of, uh, of resource scarcity, of war, of massive displacement. All of these conditions were already pre-existing long before the earthquake, and now they have been exacerbated tremendously. Adding to that, today we are in, you know, in the winter season. It can, be, it can get quite cold in, in the Intralo regions in, in Syria. So definitely these people who find these thousands of people who find themselves today without housing, uh, adding to the thousands of refugees, some of them in, in, in Turkey have also been like some, some refugees uh, that were that were in camps have been moved and have been kicked out of these camps to make place for uh, for, for, for Turkish people who were who were like left homeless as well. So so we can definitely expect a lot of problems and you know it, 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 people who are displaced they cannot usually they cannot access you know clean water and food. Um, they they do not have access to, to to healthcare. So all of these things are basically the um, you know as the recipe a recipe for 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 infectious diseases to run rampant among community for sure. So uh, recently, the U.S. Department of Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control issued Syria uh, General License uh, GL twenty three, which authorizes. Uh, for 180 days, all transactions related to earthquake relief that would be otherwise prohibited by the Syrian sanctions uh, regulations or uh, the CSR. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? I, I saw a tweet that you 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 posted, um, you know, kind of questioning uh, the motives behind this. Yeah, well, uh, I think it, it, it's kind of one of those rare moments where uh, the U.S. administration highlights the hypocrisy of of people who will position, who tend to distance themselves from, you know, uh, State Department kind of talking points. So there was this uh, debate that was that was restarted following the the earthquake, and that is that uh, can are are sanctions against the country that finds itself today. In a, in a disaster area, are, are they are they ethical? Are they humane? And you know, I think the the the, the most exceptional thing, and I think the the, the the pinnacle of hypocrisy was that we have these these people who consider themselves, you know, uh, on on the left or, or or liberal. They they position themselves in the sense that yes, we need to help the Syrian people, but at the same time, we need to keep the sanctions on. So this, for me, made absolutely no sense, and I and I assumed at the time that. Everybody, there would be like a general consensus about uh, the destructive impact of uh, of sanction. Apparently not. So uh, I tried to pull, you know, a, a list of of evidence uh, of evidence regarding uh, sanctions during the past thirty years. And I think this is the, the, the span of thirty years. One was when uh, we seriously started to examine the effect of of sanctions on uh, on communities from a scientific perspective. And I don't mean just from from the perspective of you know, of political talking points and then trying to, 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 to make a point. So, uh, and I, I, so I listed a series of studies, uh, and most of that in highly reputable uh, journals. I'm talking about Nature, uh, about the Lancet, you know, about the, the British Medical Journal. These are, are you know, uh, highly reputable publications. And there's a series of problems 
with tensions and in and of, them, of themselves, they create humanitarian crises. So in the context of, a, of an already present humanitarian crisis, uh, how can we advocate to keep sanctions in place and not give an inch to people who find themselves today in a very difficult position while still pretending to claim that, first of all, the Caesar Act does not affect uh, relief and humanitarian aid to, to the Syrian people, and two, that sanctions do not affect people in general, only only the people in, you know in the, in the, who are part of the regime. You know, so eventually the the administration basically proved everybody wrong, and they they themselves said, no, we're going to give an exemption for up until August. So just to, just, to, just to clarify this, because the uh, uh, the press release that was issued, uh, the department uh, you know says that the, the U.S. basically says that these uh, sanctions programs do not or have not actually in the past targeted legitimate, legitimate, this is their word, words here, humanitarian assistance, including earthquake disaster relief efforts. The U.S. government has long had several general licenses in place under CSER that permit most activities in support of humanitarian assistance, including uh, in-regime held areas by the United Nations. So it's kind of, uh, I mean, if, if, if you didn't have uh, sanctions against humanitarian relief why you're issuing an exemption now I mean that's the question yeah well I mean here they they you know they they, they engage in world in, in wordplay but I mean uh, the thing is that yes they, they, they could have issued or they did maybe issue some some general licenses but these licenses like, in order to get that that general license it's it's a long and tedious process that would take months and 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 the very presence of sanctions on 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 any country would make anybody who wants to donate that such funds a thing twice that so there is, it's no wonder that for example italy was the first european country to send aid to to syria and that aid was sent around two to three, three days ago that is of four days after you know after the after the outset of the earthquake so and then at the same time i i can see that in at least in lebanon i a lot of people were wondering how can we send aid to syria in, in lebanon there's a country that shares an extensive border with the country we had no idea how to do it how what what are the outfits in order to get there and there were a lot of, um, you know, grassroots organizing effort, just individuals taking it upon themselves to just pack up stuff and, and, and money and then go and cross the border themselves in order to get that aid to Serbia. And, and they also tried to coordinate also from a very, you know, in a very grassroots kind of, kind of way with people abroad that you, that would send money to Lebanon, that money would be taken in cash and then be taken up to Syria. So, so yeah, definitely the, the impact of, of sanctions can be, can be felt. Well, one thing I, I, I know uh, that impacted um, the Syrian-American community and Arab-American community here, uh, even before, uh, d during this uh, 12 years of sanctions, is just simply transferring money to their family members who are there to help them. You know, as you know, even in the case of Lebanon, many uh, people living in diaspora support their families and send money. But in Syria... Uh, you cannot transfer, you know, money. You cannot use the SWIFT system to to send money. So, so when you talk about humanitarian, you know, it's like okay, maybe some organizations can can make it through there, but definitely not, uh, you know, just family members. Just as simple as simple as this. Uh, tell us what have the twelve years of sanctions have done? You know, really, uh, what impact did they have on 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 Syria? Well, the. 
it has yet to be fully understood. Like the, the full scope of of the the sanctions on on Syria have yet to be understood. However, we can we can see what sanctions in general have done all across the globe, and then try to deduce what happened, including Syria, of course. So um, the, there there is some kind of understanding that, or not an understanding, but like an idea that that sanctions uh, primarily target uh, individuals who are part of a of a regime. And and you know there was recently, after, especially following the the Iraq uh, the sanctions on Iraq, a new term was coined, and that is targeted sanction, which makes them make them seem more precise, like, like with like surgical with surgical precision, and that is completely false. So and so why Iraq? Iraq was the first uh, country, I think, where there was a lot of scientific scrutiny on the effects of sanction. And during the the first after following the first uh, Gulf War, a series of sanctions were imposed on the country. And because of these sanctions, a lot of uh, you know at the, the healthcare collapse, agriculture collapsed as well. Uh, people found themselves suffering even more than than because of you know living under authoritarian regime or a country at war. So um, when we think about the the dimension of of uh, sanctions, we have to bring it down to the individual, and that is, I think, the the, the biggest problem with it. So so uh, far away from you know uh, the people that we tend to hate that are that are in charge, there are people living in a certain economic space, and these people, in order for them to survive, in order then for them to live at you know a twenty first century lifestyle, nobody finds all of their needs within their their country. Everybody depends on some kind of product that is, you know, created somewhere else and brought to them. This is what 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 living in a globalized world means. So, for example, in in Iraq in 1995, people found themselves without essential medication. Um, there were there were, you know, this famous example of dialysis machines uh, being stuck in airports because you know the the, the U.S. De de deemed them uh, maybe like uh, tools to be uh, weaponized into weapons of mass uh, mass destruction, which is completely absurd. You know, the dialysis machine never ever exploded anywhere. So you know, so it events so this means that uh, people who were you know in need of essential treatment could not find them. On the other hand, you have you know fertilizers, you have machines to to plant and grow uh, you know grow food. These things could not be imported as well. So then you know agriculture collapses. What agriculture collapses, people cannot access uh, the uh, the food they need to survive, the food that they need to transform into other products to sell in order to import other other things. So it always starts with it can start with one thing that even when sanctions are targeted, their effects always spread out across across the economy, and then they impact the impact itself domestically and also abroad. So as a consequence of the of the sanctions on AI specifically, five hundred thousand people, five hundred thousand children died according to the UN and the only reason that uh, we know that it's just half a million is that because the UN stopped counting and and I think this is a critical piece of information the UN decided to stop counting when the number had half a million so oh, so that who, tracks, who tracks what's happening in Syria I mean you're using a study from Iraq but really yeah. now we really don't know the effect really on what you're saying the extent of the effect on 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 Syria yeah, I mean there are some some organizations that 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 attempt to track them down, but usually the the, the problem with with these uh, you know with these policies is that their effect can only be seen on a macro scale and always in retrospect. So if I see, for example, a spike in 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 preventable deaths or in specific uh, or deaths because of specific you know diseases that can be easily treated, and then I look and I compare it to you know the previous years before I had uh, the, the sanctions imposed on that country, then I can deduce that yes, these people died because of these sanctions. So for example, in, in Venezuela in 2018, 
40,000 people died in that single year as a direct consequences of the sanction. You know, 80% of people, for example, at, during that same year, 80% of people living with HIV in Venezuela could not access uh, antiretroviral therapy. That is, you know, a direct example of how sanctions can kill people. 300,000 people also in Venezuela during that year who had uh, chronic diseases could not also access, access their treatment. So in that sense, yes, sanctions do indeed kill effectively. Just because nobody's pointing a gun and shooting them doesn't mean that no, no, nobody's actually purposefully making sure that these people will die. On Tuesday, the heads of the three major churches in Syria, the patriarchs of the Greek Catholic uh, uh, Antiochian uh, Greek Orthodox and Syri uh, Syriac uh, Catholic churches released a letter calling for an immediate uh, end to all sanctions. Uh, have you witnessed similar calls from neighboring countries, uh, from, let's uh, say, Lebanon and others who are now calling for, to end the sanctions on Syria? Well, there's also, I think, an important call that was made by the director of the Red Crescent as, uh, as well, as part of an international organization. So, but uh, unfortunately, no. Unfortunately, uh, the, well, the thing that I observe most is this, you know, this schism in, in, in logic that is that help the people of Syria, but keep the sanctions on. The this discrepancy in the message, and uh, unfortunately, uh, particularly among, you know, uh, uh, people who can who see themselves or consider themselves as, uh, as of, the, of the left, the political left, or, or they see themselves as anti-imperialist, then this is where, you know, the, the absurdity kicks in. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, there was no organized effort. And, and while, while there is, you know, um, uh, a certain call to lift uh, these sanctions, I, I think that uh, the people who were able to push that message forward found themselves in a logical fallacy. And that is mostly because, because of, you know, um, either misinformation or the lack of, you know, uh, um, I think that basic uh, scientific logic in order to, to seek the required evidence to see what sanctions do on a country. Well, some observers have called for an end to sanctions against Syria in order to get aid to people in need. That's what you're talking about. But experts, this is, I don't know who, who are these experts, say that's an, inc that's, uh, an incredibly misguided point of view. The, and I'm telling you about experts right here in the United States, by the way, without yeah. naming them. They say that the current crisis presents an opportunity for Assad to assert his authority in Syria and ramp up, ramp up efforts aimed at regional normalization. So, I mean, is human suffering uh, from these devastating earthquakes going to be weaponized for political gains? Well, I would love to, you know, get these experts' credential, first of all. Uh, second, you know, there was, uh, as experts, I'm sure they would know of a study that was conducted uh, on, you know, multiple countries uh, that were under sanction from the 90s up until 2011. And, and that study found that uh, actually authoritarian regimes, the one that, the, the one that, for example, Syria, they, they fear that it might, you know, normalize its relations with, with other countries because it is an authoritarian regime. Well, sanctions actually do make uh, authoritarian regimes even more authoritarian. And they actually grant them legitimacy from, uh, from, from their own people. It's a sort of, you know, it was called a sort of uh, rally around the flag effect. And that is that when, when a certain regime finds itself under a threat, but under a foreign threat, then people tend to flock around it, adding to it that uh, sanctions tend also to uh, reinforce 
people who are already in power in the system in place. And that is mostly because of the clientelistic relation. So when it's hard for you to find bread, it's, you know, in a normal, regular kind of way, what do you do? You turn to the black market. When the black market becomes extremely unaffordable to you because of the de detrimental effects of, uh, of sanctions and, and their impact and how, how much they fuel poverty, then what do you do? You go and seek out a brand, whatever you can find it. And it's usually with people who can actually afford to buy it off the black market. So in that sense, sanctions do reinforce the power structures that are in uh, authoritarian regimes, and they absolutely do not democratize country. Another study actually found that um, that only 4% of sanctions do achieve the results they were intended to do. And that is like if, I, if a country issues a sanction against another one, in order to you know, democratize it or force it to change a certain policy or to, to, to even create, you know, instigate regime, regime change. Well, in the, in the past 30 years, only 4% 4, 4 of these sanctions have succeeded in doing such a thing. So in that sense, if we look at their and the quote-unquote success rate of, of sanction, how can an expert bring, uh, bring themselves to say that, yes, I will, you know, reconcile myself with uh, the immense poverty and the uh, innumerable uh, amount of death and misery, and especially a compounding that with, you know, an earthquake, just for the sake of maybe a 4% success rate. I mean, this is, this is absolutely criminal. Let's, let's face it, if you're in power, uh, you're not going to suffer from these sanctions. I'm sure uh, uh, those who are in power in Syria are not lacking bread or, or meat, uh, you know, on, on their table like the, the population who's now suffering in, in Aleppo or other parts of the country. Uh, you work as a doctor in, in Beirut. Scientists are predicting further earthquakes in, in the region basically in the entire Middle East, you don't know where it's going to come next. Is Lebanon ready, and God forbid, for such uh, cal uh, calamity? Well, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, well, uh, unfortunately, there's this, you know, uh, if we look at, you know, natural disaster, uh, when there is, let's say, uh, you know, a tornado that starts off in Cuba and then makes its way to the, to the U.S., when there is an earthquake that happens in Japan, and then we, we compare the, the death rate uh, in, you know, in, in poor countries versus the, you know, uh, countries of the global north. We see a huge discrepancy in, in the death toll. You know, so like in, in Japan, one or two individuals die, if, if any at all. Uh, the, the same you know, tornado that starts up in Cuba kills off hundreds of people. And then when it gets to the American coast, only you know, a, a few people die. Why? And the question is, the, the answer is that, well, first of all, um, poverty. Poverty makes you incapable of, of spending on, you know, on infrastructure. And two, austerity measures. And, and that is that countries of the global south found, find themselves under stauncher austerity measures than countries of the global, or global north. And what is austerity? Austerity is when the state, your own state, cannot spend on you, on your own security. And that is, the, the state cannot, is not allowed to spend on, uh, on infrastructure to make sure that buildings and roads and bridges do not collapse when there is an earthquake, that when when there is such a catastrophe, that your healthcare system has enough resources and manpower to absorb the shock and treat people quickly, you know, it doesn't invest in 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 any kind of for, uh, or form of security or like groups of people that would rush, you know, onto the site and take people out of. Uh, you know, from underneath the, the buildings and rush them to hospital. All of these contingency plans, all of this infrastructure and this manpower is is, is left, you know, un, 
it suffers from underinvestment because of austerity. So, so that is why definitely we can, we can, Lebanon was not ready as a country that has been living under, you know, a, a, a religious austerity measures for the past 30 years. You know, uh, crumbling infrastructure is already a problem uh, as it is. So what, how, what would happen when there is, you know, a natural disaster? I mean, the, the man-made disaster we had a couple of years back in the explosion of the port showed that the Lebanese healthcare system is completely not ready to, to, to absorb such a shock. And even at that time, I remember people left from Lebanon, went from Lebanon to Syria at the time to get treatment. I mean, do you feel um, in a sad way in these in two earthquakes, these two devastating earthquakes uh, will serve as a wake-up call to neighboring countries such as, I'm just using Lebanon because you are in Lebanon, but I'm talking about Lebanon, Jordan, uh, Iraq, etc. I mean, we're seeing, I mean, and I'm, I'm sure you know that just the building continues, um, building skyscrapers and, and high rises all over the Middle East. I mean, uh, would this serve as a wake up call? Let's, 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 to kind of improve the infrastructure, to improve the healthcare system. Well, the thing is that, you know, um, the thing, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not an urbanist and I'm not an engineer. But I know that you know it's harder to tear down buildings that have already been built badly and build anew, than than to actually make sure that in the future the buildings that are going to be built are built according to a certain you know standard that would make sure that they don't fall apart when there is you know when there is an, an earthquake or a natural disaster. So from that perspective, uh, you know some some countries, especially like uh, like Lebanon. Uh, find themselves in a you know it's in a too late kind of situation. So what do you do with all of these buildings that have been built? How can you uh, are you gonna you know kick pe people out of their homes and tear them down and build build new houses with money that we don't have? I mean these things are kind of impossible uh, to to achieve. And unfortunately, we we, we might be coming into you know uh, we, we're exposing ourselves to to a lot of uh, a lot of danger. And but uh, but that, that's not the only issue. I mean you know. Uh, Austerity is not a is not always a choice, and that is that when when countries find themselves in you know, in, a, in crises like uh, like Jordan, like Syria, like Lebanon, you know uh, these uh, these countries, it's very hard for them to to start to, to get out of this international system that is that is enforced by the IMF and the World Bank in order to go their own path and start investing in, in their societies. It would take a lot of political action in order to move these countries to do that to do, to do such a thing. However, if you look at a country like Turkey, that is, you know, uh, a country that, that was faring a bit better than, than, than the rest, but it's also finds find itself also in a crisis. I mean, that, that country also, um, you know, they moved entire populations to that, to the region that, that was, that, that was hit by the earthquake. And, and almost all of the buildings were, were not conforming to any sort of, uh, you know, like standards to prevent that, to, to withstand earthquakes. And even though Turkey has a certain, it's called a tax, uh, an earthquake tax. To make sure that the, the the buildings that are built have this uh, have this uh, abide by these standards, but it was it had been waived off for the past uh, past few years, and that is why you know, we find ourselves ourselves in that situation. Well, actually, you're you're right. Uh, I mean, they did not improve their seismic uh, conditions, uh, and and recently uh, I was reading the press, uh, Turkey. Uh, has been arresting uh, building owners and, and engineers, so they're trying to shift, I guess, the blame on on those who are responsible, maybe not the government at large, but uh, individuals. Yeah, that's that's the thing about, uh, you know, authoritarian regimes. I think they 
they perceive everything, uh, every problem as a problem of security. So whenever, when there is, let's say, a health crisis, you put people, you know, in, in jail, you don't let them go out of the house, you know. Uh, when there is, you know, an earthquake, you have to find somebody to blame in order to, to, to arrest them. And, and I think this is something very similar, either whether it's in Lebanon, in Turkey, or even in Syria. So yes, there has been a huge delay in, in Turkey and in Syria, um, you know, providing people with uh, with aid. But also there's also the, the unanswered question of, you know, how did we get to this point? I mean, in Syria, it's kind of clear. We, we, we know that there's, you know, a decade-long uh, de facto embargo and there's a destructive war. In Turkey, a Turkey, that, that a country that finds itself on the aggressor's end, a country that also occupies part of uh, part of Syria, you know, the, what about them? So how, how what is Barrick's chief? And that is the, the the thing is that you know the authoritarian regimes are extremely misanthropic. You know they 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 just hate their own people. They 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 look at them with contempt. So whenever there is such a crisis, they just wanna wanna you know they they, they want to respond to it in the way that they exercise their own power, and that is with brute force and policing and and laying blame on anybody else but themselves. Doctor Anis Germani, uh, thank you for joining us on Arab Talk. Thank you. That's the voice and the face of Dr. Anis Germani live from Beirut in Lebanon. And 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 Jamal, I mean, what what a complete moral uh abject letdown by the international community in terms of responding to the earthquake when it comes to the situation in uh in Syria right now. What a catastrophic uh you know, situation there. I mean, on top of the already difficult catastrophic situation that Syrians and Syrian refugees and Palestinians and other displaced uh, individuals from war uh, and uh, civil unrest there has created. On top of that, the earthquake, it's not only devastating for Syria, but obviously devastating for Lebanon and all the surrounding countries. This is... uh, really uh, another failure of the international community to take account of what's happening there. Well, you know, just 12 years of sanction, sanctions, 12 years of sanctions for what? To bring down the Assad regime, okay? Which is, which is not down. Which is not down. In fact, it has, the Assad regime uh, has been gaining more territory and more control over, over Syria. Now, whether you agree with Assad or you don't, which we don't, uh, you know, uh, I mean, we don't agree with any authoritarian regime across the globe. Do you think Assad and his and his uh, you know supporters suffered because no. of the sanctions? No. Do you no. think Assad is starving because of the no. sanctions or not getting uh, food or uh, on the table or no. the proper equipment? It's the no. poor average Syrians who are starving, literally starving, lack medical medical care and equipment. The farmers who lack also equipment because the sanctions also affect uh, equipment uh, for farming, which Syria, by the way, before the war was self-sufficient when it came to uh, farming. And you have half the Syrian population now either uh, left the country or internally displaced. I mean, you're looking at, at just the surviving half of the Syrians inside the country. And what Dr. Germani talked about is the United States um, contradicts itself because recently 
they have issued, the Treasury Department issued a statement saying that we are lifting the sanctions for uh, 180 days. But at the same time, they say that we have never enforced sanctions on Syria when it came to humanitarian needs. Complete So why lift them? And you have a humanitarian crisis now, and you're saying you have never had sanctions. And, you know, people are confused about sanctions. They think about sanctions just like about uh, military equipment and, 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 and weaponry, and it's not. When Just, just a simple thing here, because I've been contacted here uh, by – I wanted to check with the Syrian um, – American community right here in the Bay Area, and uh, they have problems, and they've had problems for 12 years, for example, just a simple thing, sending money to support members right. of their family. You know, right. the swift system that everybody knows does not work when it comes to Syria. That's right. And we know countries like Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, etc. a lot of these countries in the Middle East, and of course, I'm just talking about the Middle East, but globally, rely on its diaspora to support members of the family. I mean, that's, that, this is very common. They, they travel somewhere, member of the family works in the, in, the, in the Gulf. I'm not talking about just the United States, I'm talking anywhere. But they cannot uh, wire money to support the, someone supporting their mother or, or brother or father and so forth. They cannot do that. Okay, so, so the sanctions really just affect the poor man and woman in Syria, it does not really affect the regime. And if you look at it, and, and, and Dr. Germani just spoke about that. It just says, really, you know, it, it, there are studies that have been conducted, just that show that whenever you have sanctions, actually the authoritarian regime gets benefits. Benefits, it gets more powerful because it rallies the support. You know, it becomes like a national pride and, and they right. can... Uh, they can uh, put the blame on somebody else. They say, you know, you're suffering here in the country. You don't have food because the international community is not sending you food. It's not us. It's not the regime. So kind of they shift the direction of that blame somewhere else. Well, Jamal, it's it's, it's an unimaginable tragedy on top of an unimaginable tragedy. And uh, all the political analysis that was provided by Dr. Uh, Germani is, is, is really brilliant. But we have to face this very painful reality about the kind of deep racism and Islamophobia when it comes to the United States uh, relief efforts and the world relief efforts when it comes to uh, Syria and the Arab world specifically what's happening in Lebanon and Syria, Jordan and Palestine right now. Because what you're seeing primarily on the mainstream media is what's happening in Turkey. What you're not hearing about as much in as much graphic detail are the are the thousands of Syrians who have perished, of the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of double refugees in Syria. And the and the kind of enormity of the crisis that's going on in Syria right now. And of course, you know, uh, as you said, and as Dr. Germani said, this is not hurting the Assad regime. It's only strengthening and empowering them. And then, you know, all these other kind of catastrophic uh, situations in Syria with so many people dead and displaced is not getting any attention on the mainstream media. So, um, 
you know, I I consider this, you know, not only immoral on the part of the mainstream media, but borderline criminal on the part of these or these uh, state actors who are failing to get enough uh, relief to uh, especially the Syrians right now. And let's let's also be clear in Turkey, for example, it's it's not as if enough aid is getting into Turkey either. It's just that Turkey is getting somewhat of the press attention right now, but Syria is not getting any. That's right. And that's that's why, I mean, we still have to talk to someone also in Turkey because also the uh, situation in Turkey is very dire. They have, of course, the earthquake uh, hit uh, South Turkey, um, I guess, worse than Syria because the, the numbers now you've mentioned over 30,000, it's actually over 36,000 dead as, as, of the, as, a, as of today. 4,000 of those are in Syria. So the rest are in in Turkey. So it's very devastating. And, and this is now week one after the earthquake. And as Dr. Germani in, uh, said, after one week, even though we hear about these uh, heartwarming stories of finding uh, one survivor here and there, but after seven days entering on the eighth day and so forth, the, the finding survivors becomes very bleak. And then, and then the task of now removing the buildings, uh, the 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 the, uh, the rubble, and then what what's going to happen? You're going to find more. Absolutely, Jamal. Sadly, more of the dead there, and the number is just going to climb up. Okay, and uh, I I think in order to be fair uh, about you know the situation regarding humanitarian aid, there is another part of the story, obviously, which we have talked about. Uh, on and off over the years, which is the lack of uh, implementation of certain building standards in the region also, which doesn't help the situation when when a major earthquake like this happens. And it's curious to see Erdogan now, who many have described as dropping the ball in terms of his response to the earthquake, is starting to arrest. Uh, He's arrested over 100 uh, building contractors now, trying to put the blame solely on the building contractors for the lack of response. So it's a complex issue. We're going to continue to follow it. And I'm, I'm, I'm devastated already to say that when we report back on this next week, the numbers of dead, missing, and displaced could be over double what we're reporting today. But, uh, you know, we'll continue to report on this. We should transition to the bigger fake news that's going on right now, uh, Jamal, which is the fake democracy protests that are going on in Tel Aviv, as we've been reporting here on Arab Talk, uh, there is this outcry among Israelis of you know not wanting to lose their democracy since Benjamin Netanyahu and his right-wing extremist terrorist uh, cabinet uh, is taking over and wanting to basically undermine judicial accountability and judicial. Uh, yeah, using the judicial system, if you can call it that, uh, the Israeli judicial system to hold accountable the other branches of their government. Netanyahu's going full steam ahead. Uh, there are protests in the streets, democracy protests. They're not democracy protests. They're apartheid protests wanting to hold on to the old apartheid system when, in fact, the new uh, this new kind of fascist system, which many people have described it as, Jamal, a really fascist system, is is starting to take hold. Um, We have a lot to talk about that, but 
you know, this comment from this rabbi is really kind of disgusting if you think about it, saying that the dead, the wounded, the displaced, even children were were basically smited by by God, that this was an act of God. Well, just to clarify, this is uh, Chief Rabbi of Safad, Shemuel Eliyahu. He's a prominent figure in Israel's national religious movement. And we're talking about this is what he said on Friday that uh, about the devastating earthquake that struck Turkey and Syria earlier this week. Um, you know, he described it as a divine justice in, in an article published in Ulam Katan, a popular conservative religious right-wing weekly newsletter, just. Eliyahu, who, by the way, uh, his best buddy is uh, the the new Israeli national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gvir, uh, the head of the far-right Otsma Yehudit uh, party, compared the earthquake to the drowning of the Egyptian forces in the Red Sea in the biblical story of Exodus. And I'm quoting here, there is no doubt that those who would have seen the Egyptians drowning in the sea and who did not remember the whole event from beginning to an end would have been filled with great pity for them and would have tried to save them from drowning. Then and he then and he talks about how Israelites sang songs uh, and then uh, he, you know, he then he turns his uh, words to what happened to the in the massive 7.8 and 7.5 earthquakes. Uh, by saying God is judging all the nations around us who wanted to invade our land several times and throw us uh, into the sea. Everything that happens, happens in order to cleanse the world and make it better. Well, that is smacks of using religion and faith to justify the, the devastating, uh, devastating loss of 36,000 lives, men, women, and children. And I don't know what to say about that, Jamal. This is a reflection of the current extremist, radicalized, you know, Israeli establishment. It's an, well, it's just my question is this story you didn't hear about it in, in, oh, in, in you mainstream won't. media right here in the United States. You won't imagine if a Muslim cleric or a Christian priest, and he had an earthquake somewhere, be it um, anywhere, and said, oh, you know, that's divine justice. Imagine if someone said like said something like this. Then it would be wall-to-wall -wall coverage all over the media. Here, this was covered, by the way, by Israeli media, you know, I mean, and, and nothing here, you know, because... Of course, of course, and nothing will be covered, and you won't hear anything about it, Jamal. And... Uh, just like the news of these fake democracy uh, protests in Tel Aviv. I mean, we we have to grapple with this situation now that and this is this is this this has been kind of kind of articulated a little bit in the mainstream media here that this is the last stand of democracy for the apartheid regime. I I don't know how you can use in one sentence democracy <laughs> and apartheid just but anyway, but, for but this is the way sake. for argument's sake, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you, you get little hints of this in the mainstream media, but the breadth and the depth of the changes that are going on in the apartheid regime right now, the number of terrorists that are that are uh, members of Knesset and who are cabinet ministers right now is is staggering. And, uh, you know, 
all we hear about is, you know, our State Department and our president basically saying, well, you know, we should let the Israelis come to consensus and and work this out. They're not seeing the reality, the big apartheid elephant in the room, Jamal. What's happening in the apartheid state right now is just devastating. Wake up, smell the fascist roses right now, and let's do something about it because more and more Palestinians are being murdered every day. That illegal settler colonists are taking over large swaths of the West Bank again, Jamal, and Netanyahu's plan with his cabinet is to annex the West Bank, and nobody is paying attention to this. That's right. So our final story, we have a few minutes here, Jess. Oh, yeah. Breaking news, Jamal. Not breaking news because we've been talking about it for, for ages. And, for years. Uh, and, and this is uh, a new story in, in the Washington Post and, and goes more into depth, uh, as you've mentioned, investigative reporting. So <clears throat> people for, have forgotten. I can't even think about how that. It, this is since early 2021. We're in 2023, and Trump is planning to make a comeback, or he's he's, he's, he's making trying to make a comeback. He's making a comeback, yeah. So when he exited the White House, he and his son-in-law uh, Jared Kushner, um, which a lot of people didn't know, faced unprecedented business challenges. That's very important to think. Business, uh, revenue at Trump's properties had plummeted during his presidency. And the attack on the U.S. Capitol by his supporters made his brand even more uh, polarizing. <clears throat> and Kushner, whose last uh, major business uh, foray had left his family firm needing $1.2 billion uh, in bailout, and, uh, you know, so both of them basically were in, in the red, both their corporations in but, the red. But we're, we're putting it, we're putting it uh, very uh, lightly, Jamal. The, both their corporations were hemorrhaging money, were on the verge, especially the Kushner companies, were on the verge of financial collapse without these uh, massive billion-dollar infusions from the Gulf and from the Saudi crown prince. There's every indication that the Kushner corporations would have would have kind of succumbed, and who knows what would have happened with uh, Donald Trump's business at this point. But the point being is that they personally benefited from their relationship, which was supposed to be on official grounds. I mean, when you're a president and you're a top legal advisor in the White House, your aim is to protect the interests of the United States. We had been saying for many, many years, and now it's been proven by this investigative reporting, that Kushner and Trump benefited personally from their relationships and work uh, while being on the payroll for the United States. So the day after leaving the White House, uh, Kushner created a company Right. Basically, uh, that he transformed months uh, later into a private equity firm with $2 billion uh, from a sov sovereign wealth fund chaired by your favorite prince, uh, Crown, <laughs> Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And, you know, this, this he didn't have to report. He they, they, Basically, they used a uh, just a... Uh, 
I guess a a way or a legal way to not to disclose the source of the funding. This is uh, uh, his business. Business use a commonly employed strategy that allows many equity firms to avoid transparency. That's why not too many Americans heard about this. Yeah. All of a sudden, you have you're going from losing money, then you have like. Two million, two billion dollars in your account, which, by the way, later on it rose to to three billion dollars worth of uh, but Jamal, we're for- money, right? But we're also forgetting the billion plus dollars that uh, the the Emirates uh, bailed Kushner out of his uh, Devil Building six 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 Broadway. They bailed him out of that too. So basically, it looks like Kushner got well over three billion dollars. From from the Gulf area, Jamal, and That's- and and Trump, uh, uh, you know, losing the Trump, uh, you know, organization, which was as you've mentioned, hemorrhaging money. They got secured an agreement uh, with a Saudi real estate company that plans to build a Trump hotel as part of a four billion dollar Gulf resort in in Oman. Yeah, Jamal, it's hard to describe uh, the words to go with this. And uh, the, that's juxtaposed with uh, Kushner uh, getting away with these kind of uh, kind of uh, I, I think it's stolen money, frankly, because he benefited as while working in the White House. No one's going to hold him accountable. I mean, you know, we have that saying that Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Kushner's father is a convicted felon, spent money, spent time in jail because of uh, money fraud. And now Kushner's doing the same thing. Will he be held accountable? And at the same time, you're not going to like this, but uh, Donald Trump will most likely be the next president uh, candidate for the Republican Party. So I'm not going to even think about that. Uh, <laughs> he he will be, but I don't want to even think about that. But I am keep reading more and more about this uh, expose just to to kind of understand it. But, uh, you know, according to the report, uh, the family hotels, the Trump family hotels and and resorts had lost $120 million in revenues, you know, at at that point, because of both his polarizing uh, presidency and pandemic. And of course, uh, legal fees, because he's facing multiple investigations, etc. And Kushner, in 2018, because you're talking about that, 2018 required a $1.8 billion bailout. Oh, no, I'm sorry. He required a big bailout because in 2018, because his decision to buy a $1.8 billion office that's building the in six, New York. Six, that's the 666 building. Yeah. And, and so he got, he got uh, a Canadian out. company to bail him out. And then that's when he went then afterwards to the Gulf. And then the day after Trump administration ended, Kushner created a company called AFIN Management. Right. And he used it to springboard to create private equity fund. And uh, that, that later in the year, he called Affinity Partners. I mean, it's a, it's a long chain of events to kind of avoid being transparent. But- and, and then $2 billion shows up from uh, the Saudi Arabia 
public investment fund, and we know who's behind the Saudi Arabia public investment fund. That's the royal family. That's that's basically. It's not even the royal family, Jamal. It's MBS. Well, I mean, he's 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 in in control. In March twenty two. Uh, the Kushner-run company filed an investment advisor registration document called Form ADV uh, with the security exchange that requires only a vague report. That's why I don't hear about it. Declaring $2.51 billion in, in assets. And they just listed on it came from non-United States persons. Like how many, You can have like these non-United States people just willing to put billions of dollars so and, if regular people do things like this, Jamal, and by the way, people. his firm receives to manage his own fund. He set up another firm and receives twenty-five million dollars management fee annually from this Saudi investment, uh, you know, plus it shares in in the profits. So all these kind of hoops that they are play, playing, just basically to fatten uh, their pockets. Uh, and we're only just they've been only out of office for a couple Two of years. years. Yeah, well, I think we have to follow this story, Jamal. We, you know, the Washington Post did some really great investigative reporting. We'll continue to follow the story. Knowing how the Washington Post works, Jamal, this is probably just the tip of the iceberg of their investigative report. We're sure to find more things to come in the future. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest shows, and we will talk to you next week. We'll see you next week.